Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, and on this episode of Better Off, we're talking to Reed Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn, and his co-author Chris Yeh. They're talking about blitzscaling. In Silicon Valley, which is this tiny little fraction of the world, it's the whole area has 4 million people, and yet it's about half of the NASDAQ. Why is that? And it's this blitzscaling. It's just going to scale very quickly, taking a lot of risks, and doing things that classic business people would say, that's kind of foolish. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. I uh, accosted this dude in the CBS Green Room. Uh, Reed Hoffman is the co-founder of LinkedIn. He's a partner at Greylock Partners, co-author of The Startup of You and The Alliance, And, you know, he's got this new book out. It's called Blitz Scaling. And, you know, every other podcast, every other show they have just read on. But I wanted his co-author on as well, because I feel like the co-author probably did a lot of the heavy lifting. Don't you think, Mark? Like he probably did a ton of work and he doesn't get on any of the broadcasts. So in this interview with Reed Hoffman and Chris Yeh, we do talk about their new book, Blitz Scaling, The Lightning Fast Path to Building Massively Valuable Companies. But you know what else we talk about? We talk about Facebook and the responsibility of social media platforms to actually police their sites, to scrub what goes up and out, and why they have been complete weenies, maybe up until this moment. So here is a really interesting interview with Reed Hoffman and Chris Yeh. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Reed Hoffman, Chris Yeh, the co-authors of Blitzscaling. Welcome to the program. Great to be here. It's awesome to be here, Jill. All right. Uh, Chris, we start the program with a very important question. You ready? Absolutely. Best financial or career decision you've ever made? So I would say the best financial and career decision I made came when I just graduated from college. Which was where? Uh, Stanford University. Oh, well, that's our, funny. I've heard of that place. Our mutual alma mater, although mm-hmm. we weren't classmates. And I was deciding what to do. I had been a a product design major with IDEO's founder, David Kelly, and I was thinking about maybe going there to work. But I made the early decision to actually go into the Internet, and this was in 1995. Oh, you're so old. And so I joined D.E. Shaw and company, Jeff Bezos' old company. He had already left uh-huh. and got into the internet, and that set me down the path where I am today. It also led me to meeting my wife. So in that sense, it was absolutely the best decision I'd ever made. Uh, hey, Reed, is the wife the brains of the operation over there, or what? Uh, I The wife is the brains of the entire operation. I love that. Uh, Reed, what was your best career or financial decision? Well, for me, the funny thing is my friend Peter Thiel came to me and said, I'm co-founding this company. It was then called Confinity. Mm-hmm. And we'd like you to join the board as part of our founding this company. And I said, well, what's the idea of the company? And he said, well, it's encryption on mobile phones, and we're going to sell an encryption package. And I was like, well, that's a terrible idea. It's <laughs> never going to work. Um, but you're a good friend of mine, so you know, I'll, sure, I'll come help and I'll join. Mm-hmm. That's the company that became PayPal. So that was, you know, and it's not just the economics of it. But the centrality in Silicon Valley, the network that was established, the opportunities that it gave me downstream, that was super clearly the inflection point for my career. When did LinkedIn come, before or after that? After. Talk a little bit about the formation of LinkedIn and how what, what was your first reaction to this idea of changing the way job search works? 
So the job search part of it kind of evolved, but the initial uh, gem of the idea is Peter and Max and I were in the middle of where it looked like PayPal might blow up. And so we were kind of kicking around ideas about what we might do next if PayPal was a mushroom cloud. And as it turned out, PayPal worked out just fine. That's great. And what we did is we said, okay, uh, we got to selling PayPal to eBay. And I kind of, okay, maybe I'm going to take a break. And I went, well, wait, no one's done this idea. No one's done this. Establish your professional identity, put it online, be able to have that how you navigate your career, how you navigate your work, how you find opportunities. Well, so shoot, it's going to happen at some point. Let's go do it now. So rather than taking a year off, which had been my original plan, I took six weeks off mm-hmm. and then started on LinkedIn. I am taken by LinkedIn in a in a different way because, of course, I have such a weird connection with social media, but it's LinkedIn where I actually have real conversations with people. Is that simply because people have to be less trolly and more professional, or is there something about the DNA of LinkedIn that makes it just a, a, a more pleasant place to be socially available to the public? I think there's three things. One is it's based on your real identity, and things accrue to that. And since your real identity and your professional context is really important to you, it makes a big difference economically, people are much more cautious around that. Second thing is we set it up with the communities get set up with initial kind of founding moments, and then the that kind of DNA continues. And I was like, no, no, this is about work. This is about what we're doing to improve our careers, and that has a lot less of the troll elements to it. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing is, you know, we allow a fair amount of policing about, no, 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 let's keep this about the kind of the the progress, the civility, the aspirations of work, and not about anything else. And we, we enforce that, you know, gently, but rigorously. Okay. And how long were you at LinkedIn before you realized, oh my God, we're onto something huge? Like, how long were you working at it before you realized, oh my gosh, this is really something different? Well, all entrepreneurs have this kind of aspiration of, like, I, I knew it could be huge. Uh, and the only question was, was the timing right and was it my ability to execute it? I'd say it was roughly two years in that I was like, okay, we've got something. Chris, what were you doing minding your own business, not being part of LinkedIn in this time? And talk a little bit about your career, and then how did you two meet? Well, actually, those things intersect nicely. So at the time, I was working on my third startup, which was actually an enterprise software company. But I was a big fan of this newfangled field called social networking. And so when LinkedIn came out, I was actually one of the first people to sign up. We looked it up afterwards. I'm user number 3,000 or so in the history of LinkedIn. That's awesome. And I thought, wow, this is exactly for me because I'm someone who's very interested in connecting with others. And I reached out to the founders because I saw they were all Stanford grads. And that's how we got to know each other. So you all have like a little sorority action here, like you're a sorority fraternity of uh, folks that were Silicon Valley people. You're excited by it. And then did you join officially in the LinkedIn universe? That's my big financial mistake. Oh, nice. Back at that point in time, I was not yet investing in startups. Clearly, LinkedIn would have been one of the best investments I could ever make. Instead, I just had to content myself with getting to know the founders. All right. So you got to know them. And then how did you guys hook up? What was the connection in beyond, you know, sort of that you have a coincidental connection and that you reached out? How did you hook up professionally? Well, the connection is actually our mutual friend, Ben Kaznoka. 
So Ben is also an entrepreneur, also an author, has known both of us for a very long time. And at the time, Ben was Reed's co-author for The Startup of You and then his chief of staff. And Ben and I had been in touch for a long time. We always had done these various intellectual discussion salons together. And he reached out to me and said, hey, Reed and I would like you to come in and, and see us. And I said, oh, yeah, absolutely. I like both of you guys. And so I came in, and the startup of you had come out, and this notion was, hey, we think there's more to be said here because the startup of you is all about the personal individual side, mm -hmm. and there's the corporate side, the managerial side to discuss. And they said, you know what? This writing books is a lot of work. We need a guy who's really good at writing things really fast. Wait a minute. You went to Stanford. How is it that you can write? I'm just kidding. I have a creative writing degree from Stanford University. All right. I also have a product design engineering degree, but I have a creative writing degree. I like that you can tout that. So let's talk about this book, Blitz Scaling. Reed, how would you define Blitz Scaling? The succinct definition of Blitz Scaling is prioritizing speed over efficiency in an environment of uncertainty. More simply, it's a way that these massive scale companies go from an idea on the back of the napkin to an industry transforming business in a small number of years, like a decade or less. Airbnb, Uber, PayPal, Facebook, LinkedIn, these kinds of companies and how to do that. And it's a set of techniques around business models, management techniques, recruiting techniques, go to market. Uh, all of these things are part of why in Silicon Valley, which is this tiny little fraction of the world, it's the whole area has 4 million people, and yet it's about half of the NASDAQ. Mm. Why is that? And it's this blitzscaling. It's just going to scale very quickly, taking a lot of risks, and doing things that classic business people would say – that's kind of foolish. So if you if you were sitting in front of a Harvard Business School um, panel of professors, they might look at this and say, this is insane because at these very specific inflection points, you put the company at risk. What's your response to that? Well, sometimes the bigger risk is not taking these risks. And so uh, in a much more globally connected world, the difference between first prize and second prize is very small. We call these Glengarry Glen Ross markets. I love Glengarry Glen Ross. I'm an old salesperson. First prize? Cadillac. Second prize? Steak knives. Third prize? You're fired. The door. I love that. <laughs> exactly. And so it makes a big difference if you're the first to scale. Mm -hmm. So what that means is the classic business wisdom, or what's your what's your customer acquisition cost? What's your unit economics? What's your long-term value of your customer? What's the the set of ways that you grow all this? You actually are not really paying much attention to any of this as you scale as fast as you can. You're not being efficient in your operational management. You're not being efficient in your recruiting. You're not being efficient in essentially how you're growing your company and divisions. You're focused on speed to scale above everything else, including taking risks of, well, maybe you actually haven't really figured out your full business model, your mature business model, mm -hmm. which sounds crazy from a traditional operationally efficient business perspective, but is sometimes the right way that you establish these businesses of the future. But Chris, there are obviously some pretty major league hurdles, and that if you put growth and scale, make that the priority, there can be problems along the way. And I, of course, you know, Facebook's in the news, so let's talk about that. So, so you look at a company that has grown so quickly, and there seem to be some pretty big mistakes that were made along the way. So how can you recognize those mistakes 
and not put the whole venture at risk in the pursuit of growth? Well, I think the most important thing is to have a strong orientation to the future and to know where you want to go. So one of the things that we often say in the book is that if you know where you want to go, then you'll be able to find the techniques along the way to help you get there. Blitzscaling is all about knowing we want to build an enduring market-defining company or organization. Along the way, there are going to be obstacles, no question, and you're going to need resilience to recover from them. Blitzscaling means you're moving so fast that you're going to make mistakes. And the key is figuring out how to recover from those mistakes. And to be able to do that, you need to remember that North Star of where you're trying to go. So, Reed, you have a connection to Facebook. Why don't you discuss that a little bit, and then I'll ask you some more questions so you can be full disclosure. Your connection to Facebook is? Uh, I was one of the earliest angel investors. Do you still have a connection to the company as it is running day-to-day today? I've never had a uh, connection to the company running day-to-day, but I am good friends with basically the entire executive team. Okay. So they clearly employed, even though it wasn't a word then, blitzscaling, right? And their North Star, Chris, would have been uh, said, you know, we want to connect the world, essentially, right? But then there are certain responsibilities and issues that have come up. How do you think Facebook has done in reconciling their blitzscaling growth strategy with their responsibility? Well, the good thing about all of the executives, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, uh, the entire crew, is that they are strong learners, uh, both as individuals and as an organization. And I think initially they went, look, we're just building the social product and we're building a product that people really love and we're really good at being focused on that and that's what we're doing. And so I think it took a bit to kind of understand, oh, well, actually now we've transitioned to social infrastructure. Now when, you know, like a foreign power is using us to hack the elections, yes, there's major responsibilities for the government, but there's things we should do here too, and this is something we should invest in. And one of the things that I uh, love about the team, love about the the company culture, is they have pivoted hard to work on this. They're actually, you say, well, they should have done it months earlier. It's like, well, it's a legitimate thing to say, oh, right. Uh, I didn't quite understand that I'm now part of social infrastructure, and now I'm going to step into that responsibility. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a month later. Maybe it's six months later than you'd like. But they've now got hundreds of engineers working on election integrity, working on truth within the platform, working on how does information that has a higher journalistic integrity spread more within the system. Mm. They're working on those things, and so I, I think we, we want them to succeed. You, uh, listen, I want them to succeed also, but you know, I heard Mark Zuckerberg's interview with Kara Swisher at Recode on her podcast, and you know, as someone who comes from a news organization, I am troubled by the idea that they don't want to have the responsibility of being a news organization. I get why they don't, because you know what? News is a pain in the ass, and it doesn't make money. I get that, okay? But Facebook now has 2 billion users. It is essentially a de facto news organization. So what steps do they need to take to be able to maintain their growth, but also be responsible to that idea? They are, like, it doesn't matter whether you thought you were that or not. You're there. So what can they do? Would you make a similar argument that, like, for example, Comedy Central is a de facto news organization and needs to just because it's spreading information or if uh, if people are watching like, entertainment shows? Like, just because okay, wait, wait, wait hold on a second. Let's do the entertainment. Yes. So, yeah, I would. Because mm-hmm. if you are putting 
news about actors, actresses, industry. Uh, yes, I believe that you have a responsibility. In fact, the person, the woman who was the executive producer of Entertainment Tonight came from the CBS News Division. Mm-hmm. And they said, we have a responsibility to make sure what we put out there is absolutely reporting. So the question I was gesturing at is there's a lot of things that where people spread information and content to each other that isn't news and news reporting. And part of the argument on these kind of social platforms is they say, look, we're not representing ourselves as news. We're not representing as saying, look, we we are endorsing this. We think this is true. We've got a journalistic story behind this and so forth. We're essentially giving a bunch of individuals, a large number of them, voices by which they can express themselves and they can say the things that they're doing. So. I'm not sure. I actually think that they're right in saying we're not a news organization. I think that's baloney, and I'll tell you why. Because it has now become a source of news. So I think that when you have somebody who is writing crap about Sandy Hook didn't happen, that there is a responsibility. You wouldn't let that happen on LinkedIn. You wouldn't let half the crap that goes on Facebook unchecked. You would never let that go out on LinkedIn. And there would be real repercussions. I mean, and look, you're not running this place day to day, so I don't want to hold you accountable. But I feel quite strongly that to hear Mark Zuckerberg say with Tiscara Social, well, you know, if they're Nazis, they have every right to put their stuff out there. No, they don't. They actually don't. You're you're a company. You can actually police that. So they, they don't have free speech. This is a company and they can literally put their thumb down and say, no, that's not OK. Look, what I think the right answer is, is society should say, within a scope of editing conversation, we expect companies, that are companies that are domiciled here and operating here, to have the following umbrella. Like, so for example, this is where we expect them to do. Because what they're trying to say is, we're allowing a diversity group of, in, uh, of individuals to articulate their voices. Now, I completely agree with you personally about Nazis and deniers of Sandy Hook and all the rest is I think that that's, you know, kind of a corrosive and and frankly pernicious mm-hmm. in its in its impact. But on the other hand, part of what you want to do is say, well, we have we allow a broad range of speech in our society, and if you're saying we're allowing people to articulate things as individuals, which we do allow within society, mm-hmm. I understand that. Mm-hmm. So I think what happens is society needs to say. Here is how, in this modern evolution of tech, how our notions and interpretations of free speech and dialogue is changing. And this is what we want you to implement towards as a society. Mm -hmm. I think that it's a legitimate thing to say, look, as a company, we're not trying to, you know, kind of mind manipulate the the country. Because we go, oh, well, the things we we agree with for very good reasons, you know, uh, the truth of Sandy Hook, the, the the truth of the Holocaust, the truth of these things, which are super important. But say, for example, you know, like take a, an area that has more uh, heat Gray to area. It, climate change, mm-hmm. right? There, there are smart people who go, I don't think that, you know, climate change exists, even though I think it's a scientific fact. Mm-hmm. And you say, okay, well, we as a company are now going to say anyone who is opposed to climate change can't speak here. What if you did this? And I promise we're going to get back to blitzscaling. But let's come up with an idea right now and implement it, okay? What if – you ready, Chris? I'm ready. Are you in? Born ready. All right. What if there was a way for you to do what the New York Times does or the Wall Street Journal does, which is one part is news and this is your op-ed. This is your opinion. Is there a way to label that so that – opinion and baloney doesn't end up in a news feed and it only ends up in an opinion feed so that almost 
like when you're a user of Facebook, you know this is vetted, this is verified, this comes from a real source, and you guys actually do have the responsibility, not you guys, they, Facebook has the responsibility of saying, okay, these are the news sources that we recognize. And you have to apply to us Mm -hmm. to actually say you are a news organization. Chris, what do you think? Are you on board? Is it easy to do? Just give me a couple of, write something for me, a little program. Well, I think Facebook is actually making strides in this direction already. They are focusing on things like, okay, can we bring in external fact-checking to provide the sense of, is this credible news or is this not credible news? So I do think that that is a good idea. So let's get back to blitzscaling. Can you now, if you are at Facebook and you're Mark Zuckerberg, should you say, hold on, time out, I need to like slow the growth down and fix this, and that is going to mean I will put growth aside and deal with the issue at hand. So I don't. Th- I think it's a false dichotomy to say slow growth down and work on this. I do think there is. I'm going to take some of the resources, the engineers, the product managers, the team that I would have dedicated growth on other products, and I'm going to shift them over here. So there's going to be a resource allocation uh, thing. But I think they. I don't think they have any concern about what their exact profitability is and the spending the profits. I think they care about being an amazing product and an amazing platform three, five, ten years from now in terms of what we're doing and say, if this helps us get a much better product that has a much better impact on people's lives, and that's essentially what they mm-hmm. want to invest in. And what we, we talk about in the book is to say that as you get to larger amounts of scale where you have uh, more employees, your organization has gone from single-threaded to multi-threaded, you have more management bandwidth, you should invest in understanding what these other risks are, mm-hmm. what your impact in overall society is, and then you should increase your level of investment in that. And I think that's precisely what they're doing. And even though hundreds may sound small, it's a technology organization. This is hundreds of people in technology. They're trying to build essentially the technological platforms like AI and sentiment analysis and other kinds of things in order to get leverage across the billions of users. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Reed Hoffman and Chris Yeh, the authors of Blitzscaling, in just a minute. Uh, you know, talk about people who are not average. Reed Hoffman, not an average guy. He's a very nice guy, very lovely. And his co-author also, completely lovely. But these are not average human beings. But then again, you're not average, are you? You're listening to this great podcast. You're also not an average investor, Right. So why settle for the same old average investing? Here's good news. There's a smarter way to manage your money. Betterment. Betterment is an online financial advisor for people who refuse to settle for just meh, average. Betterment uses cutting-edge technology to build personalized portfolios and help you make more from your investments. Then they guide you along the way. They've got advice to help you make smart financial decisions. All of this for one low transparent fee. Yeah, I know. Investing does involve risk. We cannot wring that out of the system. Once you're an investor, you've got to take risk. But don't settle for average investing. Demand better. Better Off listeners can get up to one year managed free by visiting Betterment.com slash better off. That's Betterment.com slash better off. And now back to our interview with Reed Hoffman and Chris Yeh. So, Chris, some years ago, I interviewed a CEO at a big company, and I said, tell me about your stakeholders. Who are the, your stakeholders? And he says, look, traditionally, we have 
the shareholders, the people who own the company. We have the community at large. We have the employees and we have the customers. And he said, you know, my number one priority is employees. And he said, and I announced that at a investor conference held by a large investment bank and no one talked to me after. He said, like, I, I became radioactive. If you think about the, all those stakeholders, how do you manage your blitz scaling in light of all of those constituencies? So I think when you're blitz scaling, again, you're going to return to your North Star, which is to build this enduring market-defining company. And in that process, you are going to take into consideration the needs of different stakeholders beyond just shareholders. I think that Warren Buffett put it best when he said, Mr. Market comes to you every day and offers to buy your company for a certain amount of money. That's not how much your company is worth. That's not its value. That's just its price. And so if you're a blitzscaling organization like Facebook or Amazon or these other companies, their focus is not on increasing the stock price. Their focus is on how do we achieve our long-term vision. That means taking into account employees because you need to build an amazing team of people. That means taking into account the customers to make sure that the things you're doing are in their long-term best interests. And it means taking into account the community because all companies exist within a community, within a society. And as Reed put it, when you get to these later stages, and we do, in fact, in the book, call them the city stage and the nation stage for companies that have grown, you do have a civic responsibility. What is that civic responsibility? We have now seen that corporate America has become a bit more comfortable speaking out when they see injustices. So in my life, sort of, uh, I remember the first time I read an op-ed, Lloyd Blankfein of Goldman Sachs, way back when, wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal and the Times about marriage equality. And now people are speaking out about lots of things. Number one, when did that change? And number two, how important is it for companies to live their value system in the communities in which they serve? So I think it's critical I have this phrase that I sometimes say, Spider-Man ethics. With power comes responsibility. With greater power comes greater responsibility. And business leaders uh, of significant companies like Lloyd and others actually have, have a great deal of, of power and therefore leadership responsibility. And so I think it's very good that they do that as individuals. And they say, look, I'm trying to help us both as a company but also as a society get to the place we should be getting to. And obviously, you have to do that in a way that's tolerant of diversity of perspective and political view and a bunch of other things. But that doesn't mean that you can't still say, this is the direction I think we should be going. This is what we should be doing. And I'm uh, articulating that as one of the leaders of society. I think the way to think about it, if you say, well, I'm not naturally inclined to that as an right. individual, the way that uh, you should still get to it and think about it is one is a combination of what's your company's mission? What does your company stand for in the world? And so based on that, you should take responsibility for that. So, for example, in the LinkedIn case, it's, it's economic opportunity. So, you know, how do we get that spread and uh, across, you know, kind of diversity inclusion across the entire country? How do we give the, you know, the world, how do we give as much economic opportunity as possible? And that's one of the responsibilities from, for example, a company like LinkedIn because mm -hmm. that's LinkedIn's mission. And then there's also the what are society's needs and what are your assets where you have a unique ability to – to help and to participate. And so, you know, again, just because, you know, LinkedIn company I founded, part of what we do is we go to uh, essentially local governments and we say, well, here is a way of understanding how industry is changing in your area, mm -hmm. which industries are growing, which skills are growing, and so forth. 
so you can help drive public policy in this thing we call the LinkedIn Cities Initiative in order to help the economic region of Europe, because that's something we can do and we can be helpful and we can contribute. If you think from a combination of what your proactive mission as a company and where you have kind of assets and participation that you can be uniquely helpful, those are the areas where you should help society. Chris, you know, it's funny. Um, Reed and I may be on the same side of a certain age, and so we might look at this slightly differently. You're a little younger than we are. And I'm wondering how much the generation of millennials has driven this values discussion. In other words, you know, there are employees at all these organizations, and they can be technology companies, but they can be big banks, et cetera. How much are they pushing their management to really speak out? So first of all, thank you for referring to me as younger. It's actually my birthday this week, so I feel awesome about being referred to as younger. (laughs) I'm sadly not a millennial. I am Generation X. But I do think that the millennial generation is having a huge impact. It is now the largest generation in the workplace. It is the generation of workers who are coming up now that companies desperately need to have. We are in a seller's market for talent. And I think as a result, leadership is responding. They recognize that millennials care about mission. They care about integrating their life. They don't just have the attitude, it's just business and business has no morality. They understand that we are all whole people. And so I think it's actually been very helpful. Obviously, I'm the only woman in the room. And so let's talk a little bit about the responsibility of a corporation in the idea of diversity and inclusion and whether or not growth can sometimes crowd out that diversity inclusion. So, you know, tons of companies in Silicon Valley have really lagged. What needs to happen to not put growth and blitzscaling at risk, but also being very focused on the fact that you cannot have a company built on, you know, 92% guys. So one of the things that happens in blitzscaling is you're trying to grow as rapidly as possible. And the standard way that people do this is by hiring people they know. They hire from their networks. And the result of that homophily is that you have companies that end up looking very similar. It's the entire cast of characters, and they all look the same. And that is a major issue for the company. In fact, we identify diversity and inclusion as one of those potential traps for blitzscalers that they should really address earlier in the history of the company rather than later. And that means building in diversity from the start on the founding team from that early set of employees. The other thing, which I think is great advice I heard Reed give the other day, is for people who are thinking about starting a company to build a more diverse personal network from the start, even before they start that company. Because by the time that you are saying, oh, I need to hire a bunch of people. Oh, let me now build a diverse network. It's too late. Something that everyone should do is to build a diverse network, a cognitive diversity of demographic diversity of economic diversity in their own lives. Reed, I'm wondering, how do you feel about the notion of the sort of like a a European notion of having quotas? on boards, in organizations. This has been a conversation now, at least on Wall Street, it's been a conversation for two decades. It hasn't really moved the needle that much. How do we get to move the needle? I'm a great believer that once you break the barriers, because there's such natural incentives to deploy talent, that you've got to break these barriers around gender, race, other things. And when you break the barriers, it will start working the right way. Now, the barriers are not always overt racism. The barriers may just be uh, an undiverse network. And so you want to break those barriers. And so putting the pressure on to say, 
you know, like, for example, what California did recently, which I think is a good idea, which is say, okay, look, we're going to push on the scale to make sure that public companies are including women on the boards just to make sure that that's happening. And then once people start going, oh, wait, we work a lot better. We actually succeed a lot better doing this. Then the market will adjust. So I don't think the long-term thing is to say, well, it should all be quotas and bureaucracy, but we should do everything, including continuing to press the scale harder and harder in order to break those barriers and allow, in this case, talent to flow. You know, but that's interesting, Chris, because, you know, we've all seen these surveys that have been out now for, you know, 10, 12 years where, you know, well, if you have at least three women on the board, you improve your bottom line. And yet there are tons of companies that have fewer than three women. And why? And by the way, why stop at three? You, you know, hello. That I think read your idea like, well, you know, if they see that it works better then it will work better. It hasn't been the case so far. What is it that if somebody has a company or even somebody's working in a company and is frustrated and says, you know what, there are no women leaders here. You want aggressive growth in a business? I want aggressive growth in the diversity of the workplace. How do I get that? Well, I think what you have to do is to have people understand that diversity itself is valuable. That's the thing that is the big barrier. And right it's now. hard, by the way. It's absolutely hard. It's difficult. And it means, especially if you don't have a diverse network, going outside your network. But I use the analogy of the speaker circuit. So oftentimes we have these tech conferences. And a big issue that the tech conferences have is they have these speakers and they're all primarily male. And they complain, oh, there aren't enough women speakers. And I say, guess what, organizers? That's not going to cut it. Because you're saying there's not enough women speakers because I want someone with a big name. How are women speakers supposed to get a big name if no one's going to put them on? So we do need to do things like the legislation in California to break those barriers. All right. So let's go back to blitz scaling now that I've made you go off on wild tangents. But all of this is part of it because managing all of these pieces of your corporate environment as you're growing is really important. Is an element of blitz scaling taking a risk knowing very full well that you could fail? And how do you pick yourself up from that? So part of the entrepreneurial experience is you're taking risks. And taking risks means you can fail. There is no risk where it's, where it's kind of certain. And so the way that I um, counsel entrepreneurs, executives, is say you're trying to take as intelligent risk as possible. You're doing so for an outsized return for something it could be. But you have to have this kind of framework for understanding, am I on path or not? So in the very first book, Startup of You, I describe this framework called ABZ planning, which is you have a plan A, you have plans B, and then you have a plan Z that's a lifeboat plan. As you're tackling these risks, you go, okay, this is, this is how I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to succeed. Here's how I'm measuring whether or not I'm on path or not. And if I'm not and I can't fix it, then I shift to some plans B. And if I can't get there, okay, here's when I go, all right, change. And that's fair enough, right? I mean, because there are plenty of instances of entrepreneurs who say, I failed at one thing, and then out of the ashes of that came the next thing. So you, But you do have to have that plan Z in your back pocket. Okay, you got to go because I know you're getting utsy here. So let's finish up with my favorite question. We started with your best career or work decision. Chris, you said what was your worst? Was Is it truly that you didn't invest in LinkedIn? Well, I think that uh, from a financial standpoint, there is no question 
that that is my single worst financial decision. Uh, of course, I've made plenty of other mistakes along the way. But Share the, them all. No, but, the good, but the good news is I live in a place, Silicon Valley, which is the most tolerant of failure. My first company, I lost $6 million of investor money. And my very first angel investor, who lost half a million dollars on me, said, Chris, come help me start my next company. Because you lost my money, but you did it in a smart way. All right. All right, Reed, you have like a gazillion successes. What's the dumbass move that you've made? Well, I've also made a lot of dumbass moves. This is part of you only learn, you only grow by taking risks, and some of them succeed, some of them don't. People usually expect you to say something like, oh, here's how I lost money, or here's how this investment didn't work. Actually, in fact, in, these bl in this blitzscaling universe, it's not investing in the things that actually really work. Those are the biggest mistakes. And so for me, for example, I met the Stripe brothers, uh, Patrick and John Collison, very early. They're super impressive. But because of my background in payments with PayPal, I was like, oh, this is going to be super hard. You know, good luck. And obviously, that was a huge mistake. Uh, Reed, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. My pleasure, Jill. Thanks so much to Reed Hoffman and Chris Yeh. Great guests today. Don't forget, we drop new episodes of Better Off every Tuesday and Thursday. If you want to get on the air with us, just shoot us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. That's ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is the most excellent executive producer ever. We are distributed by Cadence 13, and we're sponsored by Betterment. See you next week.